What's fascinating, and I was just thinking about this the other day, a lot of times people get upset. They say, okay, well, somebody's defecating on a sidewalk. Why would they do that? But if you look at it from that person that defecated on the sidewalk, which probably have been me somewhere in time, I have to make a choice. Do I defecate inside the only clothes that I have or do I do it on the sidewalk? Because I don't have any more clothes. And it's bad enough, it's dirty, so now I'm going to defecate on the sidewalk. Anthony Brown is a registered nurse from Ohio who knows a thing or two about homelessness. He spent 23 years living on the streets, battling addiction and incarceration. But then people are like, why would you do that? (laughs) They don't understand that logic because someone would say, well, why don't you just go to the bathroom? Okay, but when am I going to go to a bathroom? Am I going to walk in a restaurant and go to the bathroom? No, because the last one or the last three already told me you're not allowed in here. Okay, great. And when you got to go, you got to go. And it's bad enough that I smell the way I do. And so my only other option is to do that. Today on the show, we're going all in on the subject of homelessness. And we're doing it with a man whose heart-melting success story is inspiring big changes to a very complex and challenging issue. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. My name is Anthony Brown. I'm a nurse. I am in recovery, and I've had an interesting life that I'm going to share with you individuals today. Yes, very interesting. I mean, should be a movie interesting. Here's how the real-life movie of Anthony's life begins. Cleveland, Ohio. A young boy grows up as one of four children to a single mom. It was not a happy home. Food was scarce, so scarce that the kids would be woken in the middle of the night by their hungry bellies and then beaten by their mother for stealing food from their own refrigerator. But alcohol? That was always around. So by the time he was four years old, Anthony just started drinking it. And the more he drank and made people laugh, the more praise he would get. Everything seemed normal. Then things changed. Around nine years old, me and my sisters got up in the middle of the night and we found my mom laying on the floor. She had got shot in the head. And I remember it vividly. I I remember um, the gray matter. I remember the pool of blood. And then there's a small blank spot in my memory, but the guy she was seeing at that time disappeared. So for a long time, I always thought he was the culprit. And then next thing I know in my memory is just her having a bandage around her head and we all packed up and moved to another town. Yeah, so she survived. Yes. Mm -hmm. And yeah, your mom was struggling, obviously, with addiction and her own demons and the victim of violence and domestic violence, but that was impacting you. You were physically abused by her as a child. And I know there was one beating in particular that was particularly scarring and a pivotal moment in your life. If you're comfortable sharing that, can you tell us about that? Yeah, there are several beatings. But after she got shot, because we lived in Cleveland, and then we moved to... um our hometown, Steubenville. 
And she had recovered, and she actually did well. She went to school to become a nurse and started getting her life around. But in between that time, she worked as a a janitor or something at a bank. And my sisters and I were taken in there to help her clean. And we would rummage through the desk of the bank and find things like gum or change or whatever. And one day we found everybody's payroll, so we stole it. And the FBI discovered it was us. And then that's when... My mom got fired, and at that point, switches didn't work, and my mom, she would just beat us with whatever, and so I got beat with an extension cord, and that was pretty brutal because I couldn't get off the floor. She put her foot on the back of my neck and beat me, and I couldn't go nowhere, and when I did get up and run, I went to my friend's house, and she came down there, and he ratted me out. I was hiding in a closet, and she beat me in the streets from his house to home, and Things like that occurred. I got beat in high school, in, like junior high, in front of everybody. It just didn't matter. But um, I didn't know the impact that that would have. I thought, to be honest with you, that was just normal. That was all you knew, yeah. Yeah. After the beating, 14-year-old Anthony Brown decided he couldn't take it anymore and planned to run away from home. It was around this time that a carnival came through his town of Steubenville, Ohio. So Anthony made the decision to jump in a truck with them and left town. At the same time, he was already a full-blown drug addict, which he says was the only way he could cope with the chaos that was all around him. Somewhere around the age of 12, my sister and I discovered (laughs) marijuana. Well, actually, our first time we smoked Lipton tea because it smelled like pot, so we thought we were getting high. How'd that work out? (laughs) (laughs) Well, for a 12-year-old thinking that you're going to get high, something happened. Placebo effect. Placebo effect. You know, but, um, and by then, we were still in her gin from underneath the kitchen sink. But a, a friend of mine actually had some real marijuana, and I smoked that, and I just loved what it did. It just completely took me out of everything. I didn't care about anything. And so... That's around 12, around 13, I hung out with some older people, and they were injecting drugs, so they taught me how to do that at the age of 13. And then at 14, when I ran away from home, I was full-blown addicted, just putting anything in my body, and then there was an exit route. So I just ran off, joined a carnival, and just stayed addicted. It obviously makes sense when you describe your childhood, but you've said it was a deep hole in your soul that you were filling and running from. You want out Mm -hmm. for so many reasons. Tell me about that chapter, being this teenage boy and living with the carnival and what that experience was. Well, living with the carnival, it was okay because there was no rules. I I just had to um, know how to survive. I had to know how to fight um, and take care of myself. I I quit school in the eighth grade, so I really didn't have much going on as far as education, but I didn't want to go to school anyway. Once my mom beat me in junior high. At the actual school? At the school. Yeah. I'll never forget. She actually came. We were on the third floor in the book room right outside the principal's office. And I had did something. I don't know what it was, whether skipping school or something. But they called her and she came and she beat me at the principal's office and it echoed through the hallways of school. Yeah. And 
I was done with school after that. I mean, how do you, how do you live with that when everybody knows guilt and shame and all that other stuff? And so I continued to skip school to the point where once the carnival came, it didn't matter anyway. And so I just ran off and, you know, I lived um, underneath amusement rides. As long as I did my job, I set up the rides, I tear them down, I run the rides. It didn't matter. And then throughout the day, I can inject any kind of drugs I want to or do whatever I wanted to get high. There was no rules. As long as I knew how to fight and defend myself, that's all that mattered. And I was okay with that. It's so fascinating. Do carnivals even still really exist, traveling carnivals? Um, carnivals still still exist. Um, they still travel around. It just feels like it's in a book. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. I guess they do. You You drive through and you do see... Tell me some of those stories, being with this sort of traveling nomadic community as a teenage boy, addicted and using and with no family. Well, it was at at one point in time, I told people I didn't have any family and people out there, people in the street usually don't ask you very many questions. And so I traveled with the carnival through the summer times. And then in the winter time, I would come back to my hometown, but I would stay in abandoned houses and I would hide for the time period for the winter. And then I'd come out and um, do that. Anthony did try to leave the carnival and go back home. He even tried to bribe his mom with money. So she went and signed him up to join the Navy. She lied on the application and said he was 18 when he was actually only 15. After two months in boot camp, they found out Anthony's real age and kicked him out. So he went back to the carnival. And this went back and forth until one day my friend Jimmy, when I was 18, he said, you know, I have relatives in California, you wanna go? And I'm like, well, I ain't got nothing else going on. And so we just jumped in his car, a 67 Mustang, and we drove across state. With, with his dog that threw up in a backseat on everything I owned, and we came to California. Welcome to California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because where I'm from and the lifestyle I was living, my only interpretation or my only idea what California was, you know, what I saw in the Beverly Hillbillies on TV. And so I thought every place in California is like that. You know, I thought people lived in mansions and palm trees and all of that. I mean, that's what I, that's what I thought I was coming to. That was the dream in your head. Yes. And um, as we drove here, I, I was, I remember when I started getting loaded with a purpose, like getting high with a purpose, I started saying, I'm going to count how many days I can get high in a row. <laughs> I think I stopped when I was 37 years old. But when we came out here, I was under the influence. I made sure that I had enough stuff to get me through it. And when we first got here, when I first seen the Hollywood sign, I'm like, oh, this is cool. Then I seen palm trees. I'm like, oh, this is great. And I seen Rodeo Drive. I'm like, yeah, this is, I mean, I'm all psyched up. Like, this is where I'm going to live. But we kept driving and, you know, Hollywood disappeared. <laughs> it ended up in Linwood. So you have this vision of palm trees and mansions and sunshine what is your reality? My reality was um, Linwood, California, in the barrio, living at a park. It was not 
what I thought it was going to be. He had relatives here, and so he had a place to live. And I was supposed to stay with his brother, but that didn't work out. And so I ended up staying in a, in a local park in Linwood. So you're living on a park bench, right? Yes. And I have a, a question about language around homelessness, because I've noticed a shift in language recently, and I would love for you to educate me and the listeners at the same time. So in general, in the past, you would say a homeless man, homeless woman, and now I hear people say a person experiencing homelessness. What is the language, as I'm about to ask you about your experience of a person living with homelessness? It's really fascinating because um, if you start putting labels on things and that's how you're going to treat people according to that label, and that's what they're going to believe they are, that label. Because homelessness, I've discovered, isn't just about not having a place to live. So I've heard those without housing. I've heard individuals down on their luck. I hear people throw the word homeless out there, but I don't believe that that's a fair label considering the um, complexity of that situation. Do you have a definition or language that feels true to you? If I was to address anyone out in the streets, I would just view it as individuals who are just having difficulties navigating life. Yeah. And start from there, because that way it removes the labels. But the thing is, unfortunately, Funding gets geared towards certain buzzwords. Yeah. And that's where our problem is. Yeah. Well, yeah, the campaign, the funding, the policy, it needs a name and a tagline. And yeah, mm-hmm. that makes that makes yeah. sense. So you're living on a park bench. You are living with the disease of addiction and trauma So can you bring that to life for us, what that experience is? Yeah. Living on the streets, it's about survival. I had got to the point where I convinced myself that if I don't want anything, when I don't get anything, I don't feel anything. And it's okay not to feel anything. And so I walked around as a shell of nothing. And so I didn't care about anything. And when you don't care about anything then it doesn't matter what happens, if that makes sense. It does. And so I live like that. In the beginning, I tried. You know, I um, I had some moments in which um, I even tried to work. But it's hard to go to work when you're embarrassed. It's hard to go to work when you're under the influence of drugs, because I always stayed under the influence of drugs, always. I mean, that's the only reason why I even tried to work, just so I could get drugs. And so living like that and getting to the point where, okay, I'm unable to work, what am I going to do? And so I tried to um, sell drugs, and that kept me going until later on in life when I got arrested. So many times it was pathetic. But being in that situation, being of that hopeless state of mind, or not even hope, when you don't even have hope, and you become a nothing. And it's, it's really hard to describe what it's like to not feel and not care. Because if I die, so what? If I live, so what? It was to use anyway. You know, here I am. Let me just get annihilated so I can pass out. I don't care if I come to. <laughs> you know, it's, when, I, when I reflect back on that, of just 
nothing matters. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's kind of sad. <laughs> it it is, and so that allowed me to um not care about bathing. That allowed me to eat food out of a dumpster. That allowed me to take whatever I think I wanted. You know, because once I start going to prison, then it didn't even matter if I got arrested anymore. I mean, so what? What are you going to do? Being in prison is better than being on the streets. Yeah. One of the ways that Anthony sold drugs was via the drive-through at the fast food place where he worked. He was supplying coke to the manager, who also let Anthony live with him. And so. Because I was his supplier, he promoted me at work, which allowed me to steal more money out the cash registers. And it was just an ongoing cycle because addiction is like that. You know, you make sacrifices when you never would. Everything went well in that situation, except for one day when him and I were getting high in our house, which was his house, but he let me stay. We were getting high and he went to the bathroom and I did all the stash. And when he came out the bathroom, it was gone. He asked me, well, what happened? And I told him, I don't know. We need to find out who took it. And it was only him and I. And so he got wise and threw me out and fired me. And so that's where um, the insanity of me going back and forth in the prison started to happen. And what were you using at this time during this cycle of addiction? Um, back then, it was cocaine. And I constantly drank. I drank wine. And I always laugh because I, I drank the most exquisite bouquet known to man, like Wild Irish Rose and MD 2020 and Thunderbird mixed with Kool-Aid. And, and so I drank wine. I did Coke. I probably was smoking PCP by then. Uh, when I say I did Coke, I was probably injecting it more often than anything because that was the drug of the times back then. And where are you getting money? Wherever I can. Yeah. Wherever I can. If if somebody would say, hey, can you pick up for me? The chance of you seeing me again when she gave me your money was slim. Yeah. And I would, I would still things. Back then in Costa Mesa, there used to be a bunch of hookers. I would hang out with them. Whenever they'd get into a difficult situation, I'd go and deal with that. And then they would reward me by giving me money or drugs. Yeah. So you... Described yourself, and you've just brought it to life at that time, as dirty, disheveled, desperate, and dying. And you also talked, which I found illuminating, that actually prison was a reprieve, and perhaps, you know, during these decades where you were at your best. And which makes sense, right? You've had three meals a day, you have a bet, you talk about it, gave you the space and your sobriety and clear head to be spiritually connected. So that juxtaposition, if you can explain that, I'd be fascinated to know more. Okay. When I'm out in the streets, it's just ruled by drugs. Once I take a drug into my body, I would always crave another drug, period. But when I'm physically removed from society and forced to not put a drug in my body, then eventually I detox and I don't crave it anymore. When I would go to prison, that was the case. And, and I got to eat, you know, three meals a day. I had a shower and I kind of liked it. I really did. You have structure. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, because I always told myself that I really don't know what's wrong, but I know something isn't right. 
And I've always had that. It's like, well, exactly. What is it? But I don't know because I adjust to my environment. And when I get put in prison, I adjust to that environment and I follow directions. I do what I'm supposed to do. And I do my time. Um, We used to have weights. I would work out and get healthy and no drugs. And I'd get out with $200 feeling really, really good. And as soon as I hit the streets again, I'm right back into getting high again. And once I started getting high, it's like, you know what? It doesn't matter. And towards the end of all of that, if I got arrested, then that's fine because I'm going to get better. But I was never attending any program or anything like that. I just go to prison and get dry and come back out and do it again. Yeah. So that makes sense adapting. Now you're back in the environment outside of prison and going back to that pattern and all that comes with that. You know, I asked, I have three kids and we live in LA and there is a huge population in this city suffering (laughs) and struggling on the streets. And so I asked them because I think they have deep curiosity as they move around the city, what questions they would ask somebody who had walked in your shoes And my nine-year-old was wondering about your interactions with people during that time and how you were treated as a fellow human being. Well, I tend to gravitate in a certain environment because that's where I get support. That's where I feel that I'm part of. And so when you're out in the streets, there's a sub-community. We have our own rules and everything like that out being homeless. Would I want to be treated like a human being? Yeah, but my defense mechanisms is always up. And more often than not, when you would look at me, you would go, ew. And once I sense you're going, ew, it's like, well, ooh, you too, and get the heck away from me. And then that caused that thing back and forth. And who knows what frame of mind I'd be in when I'm under the influence, because then the drug is driving me to need to get more of the drug. And how would I be able to do that? Now, since I've been through it, I approach people because they're people. I can look past all the defense mechanisms. I understand why they're doing what they're doing. Because what made me even change my mind was a police officer that continued to harass me, asked me if I wanted some help because I didn't know I needed help. That was my norm. Being angry isn't going to help anybody. Being compassionate and understanding is okay as long as we don't do anything to cause any harm to people. I mean, people are going to do whatever they can to survive. We're survivalists as human beings. And so I would always want somebody to feel some compassion because that's what happened with me and realize that I'm a human being, you know, just have major issues that need to be resolved so I can feel human again. Beautifully put. And I want to get to those two compassionate human beings who saw you and played a a really incredible role in your transformation. You talked about the sort of sub-community and culture and rules. What can you tell me about that? What are the rules and what was your community? Well, there's different subcultures inside of subcultures. There's the homeless people, then there's the people that have mental illness, then there's the people that have ex-convicts. It's a hodgepodge of a bunch of things going on out there. But the common denominator 
is that it's like an us versus them. You know, you guys have it going on. You guys are going to work. You guys don't understand what we're going through. Leave us alone because you don't understand it. People, I call it uh, people in Squaresville because <laughs> I'm in Squaresville today. But people in Squaresville, those are the nine to fivers. Those are the people that have the cars. Whereas we had a car, but we don't know more. We had a job, but we don't know more. We had a life, we don't know more, but you guys don't understand what we're going through. And so after a while, just stay away from us. People aren't going to come in a back alley just because they want to be nice to people. People are in fear of dark places. Dark places is where we can hide and feel safe. Yeah. And so that's a big difference. I guess that's one of the gifts God has given me from my experience that I'm able to go to those places and bring this new way of thinking or this new life. And and it takes time because a lot of times we're so used to when we're out there is what are you going to, what do you think you're going to benefit from me? Because that's what I'm thinking. What can I benefit from you? Yeah. Well, you use the word understanding, right? Like I don't understand you, your life, your choices. You don't understand me. And therefore, we're not going to connect, not look at each other, not be together in community. And what I'm hearing you say is you deeply understand. So you can walk in that dark alley with that understanding and compassion, which is such a powerful combination, right? If there was more of that. Yeah. What's fascinating. And I was just thinking about this the other day. A lot of times people get upset. They say, okay, well, somebody's defecating on a sidewalk. Why would they do that? But if you look at it from that person that defecated on the sidewalk, which probably have been me somewhere in time, I have to make a choice. Do I defecate inside the only clothes that I have or do I do it on the sidewalk? Because I don't have any more clothes. And it's bad enough. It's dirty. So now I'm going to defecate on the sidewalk. But then people are like, why why would you do that? They don't understand that logic because someone would say, well, why don't you just go to the bathroom? Okay, but when am I going to go to a bathroom? Am I going to walk in a restaurant and go to the bathroom? No, because the last one or the last three already told me you're not allowed in here. Okay, great. And when you got to go, you got to go. And it's bad enough that I smell the way I do. And so my only other option is to do that. But very few people will come up and go, hey, why did you do that? You know, because first I'm going to lie. Go, that wasn't me because I'm afraid that you're going to do something to hurt me or to take away one of my freedoms. But if you sit down and you approach, it's like, you know, I understand that this is all you got. You know, things like this happen. How about if I can provide you an opportunity to go to the restroom somewhere here where it's non-judgmental? The next time, if you feel you have to go here, go over there. And then you're going to get people to not defecate on the sidewalk. But very few people understand that. And that can be a difference in our understanding between these two different populations. Yeah. So instead, there's harsh judgment discussed, which is there's no solution in that. Right. Exactly. The other thing that was really interesting and illuminating was you hear people say it. Well, there's homeless shelters. Why wouldn't you know this person go... And you talked about autonomy and the reality of that and the reality of the disease of addiction. So for people who have that question in their head, well, why 
isn't this person just going to the shelter that's up the street? They can get help there. Can you educate people on that question? Yes. I don't want to ever discourage anybody from going to a shelter, but there are certain rules to shelters. You have to be there by a specific time. You have to leave at a specific time and you have to follow certain rules, which is fine and dandy. But if you're not in the right frame of mind, how can you follow the rules? And then you're stuck with, okay, well, you don't get to stay at the shelter. Or when you go into the shelter, is it safe in here? I'm going to protect myself. Things like that. I'm not allowed to have any weapons. I mean, it's great to go in and get a shower and things like that, but you'd have to be of that mindset. Because shelters are good if you are able to utilize them, I think. If I if I can go into a shelter and say, okay, I'm going to take a shower, I'm going to get cleaned up, and I'm going to go on a job interview, that's great. But if I'm just in a shelter and I'm doing drugs and I'm not in the right mindset, then you know, the chances are you won't even let me come back to that shelter because I'm going to do something to act out, you know, because I'm going to be paranoid or whatever the case may be. I mean, shelters are great, but how long can you stay at a shelter? Yeah. Well, the source of the addiction, the mental health is, you know, you even talked about that being in jail. If there was there intervention, rehabilitation, to do it when you're not in the cycle of addiction, which isn't going to happen in a shelter overnight. Right. And that takes time. It takes at least, I would say, a good 30 days just even detox to be in the right frame of mind. And you have to have somebody skilled there because the drinking and the drugging just covered up for me all that childhood abuse. Yeah. If it wasn't for the drugs, I probably would have killed myself, to be honest with you. Because the pain was just exactly, Exactly. I had to think about the beatings that I got and embarrassments that I got in school. I had to think about my mom getting shot in the head. I had to think about abandonment stuff. Heck, my dad abandoned me. I never met him before. Now, basically, my mom abandoned me because she chased me out of the house. Society rejects me. Okay. That's enough to just make you want to just not even be around because I got to that point where I didn't care. But the drugs kept a lid on me. And I look at this hindsight is twenty twenty. The drugs kept a lid on my sanity. When we come back, Anthony's life starts to shift in a new direction. Thanks to the compassion of two people who saw something in him and decided to offer help. We'll be right back after this short break. Do you have a story idea for All the Wiser? Someone you think would be the perfect guest? Let us know. Send us an email at hello at allthewiserpodcast.com or shoot us a DM on our Instagram page at All the Wiser Podcast. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every story you hear, we donate $2,000 to a charity. Today's episode benefits none other than Brown Manor. Brown Manor is in Anthony's home state of Ohio and is a place where people who are lost, left out, and lonely can find a safe place to restore and rebuild their lives.
So this idea of healing from addiction, recovery, transforming your life, building a life is monumental. (laughs) And that is the conversation we are having today is that you did that, which is remarkable. And you talked about the compassion and the role that two people played, which I think goes back to this idea of how we intersect and connect and see each other as a society, two people who deeply saw you. Can you explain when things started to shift for you on the path to the man you are today and tell me a little bit about those two people? The first one was a police officer because I didn't realize that police officers work a certain beat. <laughs> I mean, and I stayed in one place. So it was always the same police officer that arrested me. And the last arrest, he actually asked me if I wanted some help. Now, I cannot ever recall him saying that, ever. Because I didn't think I had a problem. Like I said, I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew something wasn't right. And he asked me, he's like, don't you think you should get some help? And I'm like, yeah, I think I should. And I went back to the county jail. And then a lady, Nancy Clark, I'll never forget. I love Nancy so much. Um, she came down and visited me. And she goes, do you want some help? And I'm like, yeah. And I thought she was kidding. You know, and she's like, okay, I'm going to take you and put you in my treatment program. I'm going to give you some help. And I never even heard of a treatment program. <laughs> I mean, never. So Jill came, picked me up from the county jail. And Jill was a counselor that worked for her. And when I go to jail, I automatically adopt a certain mindset because I know I'm going to prison and I have to think, act, and behave a certain way. And that's the way I start thinking. And she came and I was ready to go back to prison. I, you know, and she's like, okay, we're going to take you to this treatment center. And the very first thing Jill said when she took me out, she's like, do you want a cigarette? And I'm like, okay, why are you being nice to me? Because I've spent years of if somebody gives me something, it's because they want something back. Because that's the way I thought. And she asked me if I wanted a cigarette. And I go, yeah. And then she said, do you want some Chinese food? And I'm like, well, who is this person? <laughs> you know, and then she took me to this treatment center and she said, do me a favor. If you're going to leave, just walk out the gate. Don't jump over the fence. And I'm like, you trust me? And she goes, yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. That was completely different than anything I had spent. Oh, my God. The last 20 years of experiencing. And I went to this place and everybody was happy and Marnie gave me a bag of cheeseburgers and people gave me food and they put me in this apartment by myself. And I'm like, what is this? Because I never experienced that. Never. I lived in a very rough ghetto neighborhood. Then I came out to California and I lived in back alleys. And here I am in this apartment complex in Costa Mesa. And people are like, welcome. And so it was um it was too good to be true and I couldn't believe it in the beginning until I seen the consistency. And after a while I go, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna do what they want me to do. You know, because they were nice. And so I start going to meetings and going to groups and discovering things about myself and everything was good. I actually got a job telemarketing and got a check and I'm like, oh this is like all right. I like it. I did 18 months there, and then one day I 
my connect was doing. He needed to have his card signed for his parole officer. Is a connect the person you get your drugs? Yes. From? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And I went over there and they were getting high and then I remember what it was like to live in that fast lane. Because by then I was doing methamphetamines and, you know, fast money, fast times, just debauchery. I mean, it was always something different and crazy and chaotic. And then I get sober and it's like I'm listening to elevator music, you know, you know, I mean, I'm going from Metallica to elevator music and yeah, go to work and do your chores and go to meetings and get your paycheck. But then over there, they're like, everybody's crazy. Everybody's I'm like, oh my God, I missed that. And there's a saying, if you hang out in a barbershop, you're going to get a haircut. And I hung out there too long and I took that first drug. And you were back. I was back instantly. And next thing you know, I get pulled over in Riverside with a bunch of methamphetamine in my possession. But the seed of recovery was planted. And once I started getting high, I wanted so bad to become sober again because I miss that nice little predictable lifestyle. I really miss that so bad. And I couldn't stop. And so when I got arrested the last time, I was extremely happy because the madness has stopped. I got arrested March 28, 1999. I haven't had a drug or a drink since March 29, 1999. And Nancy advocated for a lower sentence. Yeah, and that was that was interesting because I've always had some sort of semblance of God because my mom made us go to church when I was little. But God was a rescue kind of God. You know, I was like, oh, God, help me. And I swear I won't do this again. And you know, I remember I was loaded, and it was around the end of March. And I go, you know what, God, I can't deal with this no more. Help me. And I got arrested the next day. And it's like, okay, cool. You know, because um, you're tired. I was I was tired, and it's really interesting because I remember um, I called Nancy from the jail, and it's like, you know, I really messed up. And she goes, I know you did. You know, and I'm like, I'm sorry. You know, you gave me a chance, and I blew it. And she's like, well nobody's perfect and you get another bite at the apple and just get back to what you was doing. And after that, I got sentenced. I did my time. I got out and I just been going upward since because I consider myself into recovery and sobriety and stuff. And when I was two years sober, I went back to that same park. I used to hang out and that's when God and I had a chit chat, our first serious conversation. And that changed my life completely. (laughs) Completely. And tell me about that and the shift that happened that day. Um, I was sitting at the bench and I go, you know what, God, I know cars run on gas and I know this bench is solid. I know this for a fact. Prove to me you exist and I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I discovered you be careful what you ask for. (laughs) And he proved to me. I believe, and this is me, I believe God reaches out to us in a way in which we understand intimately that a lot of people may not, but you do as a person. Yeah, it's deeply personal to you. Yes. And when I ask him to prove to me, at that point in time, the trees turned into this pastel 3D and all these little animals surrounded that bench. And it's like, whoa. And then I got my, my instructions. I got three rules I have to live by, and I've been living by them ever since. One, I can never hate anybody. Two, I cannot intentionally do any harm to anybody. And three, I have to finish everything I start. 
Those are my three rules. And that just came to you. You were clear on that. I was totally clear. I got this overwhelming peace within me that still resides deep inside me. And I just told people it's indescribably delicious, you know, and I feel so comfortable and everything just, it's just remarkable, that moment. I'll never forget it. After Anthony's God moment, he began to walk the walk and went back to finish everything he started. And at the top of that list was going back to school. He became a licensed psychiatric technician and developed the first dual diagnosis treatment program in Southern California. This with an eighth grade education. But he didn't stop there. He got certified as an addiction treatment counselor, continued to go to school, got his associate's degree, and then went on to receive his Bachelor's of Science in Nursing from Cal State Fullerton. In 2011, Anthony became a registered nurse. And that was interesting because when I went to school to become an RM, I had to get fingerprinted. And when I did my fingerprints, I go, you have a bunch of felonies. And I'm like, okay. Like, I'm aware. Right. Because <laughs> I, I contacted the nursing board, and I'm like, okay, I do have felonies. Will I be able to get a license? And they're like, well, we can't tell you if we can give you a license. You have to finish school first. And I'm like, okay. And I just pray because I pray all the time. I say, God, what do you want me to do? And then I'm reminded you got to finish everything you start. Like, okay. And so I go to school and I get done. When I got done, I applied to the nursing board. And they're like, well, we will give you your license, but we're going to revoke it and put you on probation. And I, I got so excited. I'm like, I can do probation. <laughs> I've been doing probation most of my life. (laughs) This ain't nothing. In the meantime, I'm advancing all over the place. So it's my degrees. I started working for the state. And then I started working for um, different mental health places. And um, I have a tendency, and I've been doing this for 20, almost 24 years now. I wake up in the morning and I hit my knees before I hit my feet every day. And I tell God, thank you, I'm alive. And I was taught a long time ago, grateful people are happy people, and those that aren't, aren't. And so I'm grateful that I get to be indoors. I'm grateful I can see. I'm grateful I have a pillow. I'm grateful I have batteries in my remote control, so I don't have to get out of bed to turn the TV on. I'm grateful I got a TV. And so I have this attitude, so I'm automatically winning before I even step out of my bedroom. All of this is going on, and I'm turning everything over to God, and I'm just doing whatever he puts in front of me, and I'm just living life. And sometimes I get frustrated because I remember um, when I was getting my RN or my bachelor, I was doing something and um, I failed statistics and I got really frustrated and I failed it like twice and it was third time to charm. And it's really funny because I have to finish everything I start. I have to. And so no matter what, I have to finish it. And sometimes it can be frustrating and I cry to God about it. And he's just like, you know, dude, just stop it. (laughs) You know, and I didn't realize that all of these things he's putting in front of my life, I'm looking at these pieces of the puzzle and it all makes, it's all starting to make sense. And so in the middle of all of this, I was sharing at some meetings that I go to and I was telling people about this and they're like, dude, your story sounds like really good. You should put it in a book. I'm like, okay. And so I wrote a book. 
I didn't know. I thought I was going to make like 100 copies and just give to people. I had no idea that one day I'd be on like all the wiser podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't know I'd run into Dr. Drew or, you know, I, I didn't know. I just do the footwork and God just opens the doors for all of this stuff. And so um, I'm doing all of this and I'm going to school and, this, and then it hits me. It's like, I have to like give back. And so since I do now have a um, upper level education, I focus on mental health and substance use. Uh, Cause I've been working in mental hospitals for 20 years and I see what's going on and, I've been homeless, so I just want to be an advocate for the homeless people. I want to be their voice because I understand it. That's my current quest. Is to, everything I do is to be able to help our brothers and sisters on the street. It was not lost on me that all of these degrees and certification and education goes back to the source of your suffering and the ability to heal that suffering in the world. I mean, the fact that your degrees are in mental health, psychiatric care, addiction, I think you're certified with domestic abuse counseling. It is as if you educated yourself to heal all of the wounds of your childhood to go back and alleviate that suffering for others, which is for me, seeing that clear line was, was really powerful. But the other thing, there's so much about your story that is powerful, but Brown Manor is a vision and a reality that, that you are creating. So can you explain what is Brown Manor? Uh, my brother was homeless and he was living in an abandoned doctor's office. And I told him, find out who owns that building and I will buy it so he can live in it. And I know like my financial consultants hate it when I say this, but I really don't care about money. You know, I can't take none of it with me. I've never seen a U-Haul trailer connected to a Hertz before in my whole life. And so what can I do to help him? And he couldn't pull it together. So I just looked up online and found a house in the area that just happened to be Brown Manor. When I got Brown Manor, what I looked at was an abandoned 1916 mansion. And, oh my God, I looked at that thing. I bought that house without ever even looking at it. And and that's another God thing, too. When I first found it, some realtor wanted an X amount of money, and I told him I couldn't afford it. And then I let it go. Then a year later, it came back, but it was in a penny saver or something. I called the number, and it was actually the owner, and he allowed me to make payments to buy that house. And so my last payment, I flew out there uh, to close the deal because it's in Ohio and I'm in California. And that's the first time I've ever been in Brown Manor. And I walked into that house through the side door and there was a dried bat hanging off the light. <laughs> and I smelled mildew and it was water and the ceilings was falling down and I went back to my hotel room and I got on my knees. I'm like, God, why? <laughs> and then the next day I got up and I looked in that house and I saw the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my entire life. And I so love Brown Manor. I mean, just imagine a 1916, 9,000 square foot house with stained glass windows, French doors and large archways. And, and I'm like, oh my God, I love this. 
Brown Manor reminds me of me. Just rough around the edges, neglected, tore up. And what does it take for me to get back? Just some TLC and time. So that's Brown Manor. And throughout my um, education career, I've discovered that I'm capable of learning a lot of stuff. And so I wrote a transitional program for homeless people. And I'm going to implement it there in Brown Manor. Yeah, you have on your website, Brown Manor is a place where people who are lost, left out, and lonely can find a safe place to restore their lives. Exactly. And that's what it's all about. You know, we offer a hand up, not a handout. Yeah. We're not a shelter. And that's not my vision. My vision is to be a place where you can go and actually restore your life. You know, because we all come from somewhere. I don't know. Some people just sort of lost that whole human compassion thing. And I have to be careful because some people is like, well, what's in it for me? And so when I first created Brown Manor to make it a corporation, I didn't know the difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit. And people don't want to donate to a for-profit. But the bottom line is all of this is God stuff. If people want to pitch in to help Brown Manor, that's fine. But um, I didn't realize how enormous developing that program was or how expensive it is. And there are some times that I just want to cash out everything I own, I mean, everything, and just put it in Brown Manor. Just do it. Because it doesn't matter. God's going to take care of me. And I've, I've eaten out of dumpsters. I can live off of Top Ramen. But what can I do to help somebody else? So that's Brown Manor. And, you know, before Brown Manor came my book, and that book really opened my eyes to a lot of different things. That book healed me a lot. Just the documenting of your past and your story and processing it in that way? Yes. Yeah. Because I got to relive a lot of things. I got to find a lot of closure to a lot of things. I got to look at how something from the past can have a strong impact on who I am today and how to close that. And I had to, I had to develop different tools through my education in order to apply them to myself. I sort of did self-therapy. It was really fascinating because I, I healed and I cried and I got to experience a lot of emotions and it's okay to, to feel and heal and it's okay to cry. You know, real men don't cry. We just get heavily misty eyed and it's okay, <laughs> you know, and I'm okay with talking about things because when you bring something out of the dark into the light, then the shadow diminishes. And so mm-hmm. I, can, I can talk about my mom being shot. I can talk about me injecting drugs. I can talk about all of that stuff. And I got to the point where I'm established in society that my positive attributes, it outweighs my negativity that occurred in life. You've balanced out the scale. Yes. Yes. Because I've, I've been through things where people want to try to use your past to harm you. I understand that. It's disappointing, but that's okay. That's between them and whatever they believe. I know I just give it to God. It's like, you know what, God, that's that's you. Okay, I'm doing something else, and God will open up a door and go, okay, well, go do that. It's like, okay, I'm too busy doing that. I'm going to school right now to be a nurse practitioner. It's okay, focus on that. Brown manner, focus on that. I don't have time to think about all the negative things that's going on in this world. We all get to make choices. I'm curious, are there skills or traits that you learned living on the streets 
I know the answer is yes, but I'm curious about what superpowers you have now that were learned or developed during those 23 years. Oh, I have some good ones. <laughs> um, one, I function really well with little sleep. Two, I can sleep anywhere. I can go to sleep sitting up and I can be really sensitive to my environment while I'll wake up if I perceive danger. I have a really acute sense of awareness of the environment. I pick up on a tiniest little noise, which works really well working in a psychiatric hospital. I really don't have that many fears over um, any illnesses or anything like that, because whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I mean, I was the director of nursing at a psychiatric hospital when COVID hit. When you work in a psychiatric hospital and the other half is convalescent care, elderly people, compromised immune systems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And COVID just went through our hospital. And I stayed and worked through that whole thing, didn't miss a beat. It was good. It was sad, but it was good because I rose to the occasion with no fear and I did my job. And there was one time where we had um, somebody in isolation and they were crashing. Their respiratory system was crashing. I ran in there without no gear or anything. And I started dealing with this client and my um, assistant come up and she's all geared up. And she's like, oh, you don't have gloves on and all of that stuff. She goes, put some gloves on. And I'm like, okay. And then afterwards went out and she goes, do you realize that you was in there dealing with somebody who has a positive case of COVID and you didn't have no protection on? And I looked at her and I go, well, do you know that I injected drugs in my body and I ate out of a dumpster and I lived without a shower for years? You think COVID wants to come in and mess with my immune system? You know, <laughs> and, and we all just laughed Yeah. and we got through that. So stuff like that, living on the streets has given me the ability to, um, it's emboldened me to, to deal with difficult situations. And it made me grateful for almost every little thing. So I really don't have bad days. You know, I'm going to school to be a nurse practitioner right now, which is really hard. And I failed a class. And it's like, oh my God, I failed a class. It's like, so what? Take another one. <laughs> you know, because I know what it's like to scrape a bottom and still stand up and be okay. And then I can lose stuff. People. People can't take stuff. I have to give it away. You know, if I don't pay my bills, then that's my own fault. But I can live bare minimum and still be okay with it. I don't have to have cars and houses and stuff. I know some of the people that I'm affiliated with right now tells me I shouldn't think that way, but they don't understand that deep down inside, this stuff doesn't matter. What matters is how do I care about another individual? Because by helping somebody else, it helps me. And it's all part of the universe. We're all connected. And so living on the streets is giving me that. I don't know if it's a superpower or not, but it, it helps me get through my day. It's a really big question you may or may not have a concise answer for. But when we think about solutions, or I guess maybe what would be at the source of a solution to, you know, end seems so bold. I, I would hope that would be the case, but at least to make a huge dent in a positive way in the amount of people experiencing and living without a home in this country. What is the source of the solution, if you have thoughts on that? The source of the solution is we have to stop fighting each other. Everybody has something that they can bring to the table. Let's come to agreement that 
you can use 5% of what I know and 5% of what somebody else knows and 5%, you know, let everybody become involved instead of saying, no, 100% is my way. The easiest way to resolve this homeless problem, and I've been screaming from the top of my lungs, especially in California, we have all of these institutions because we're not incarcerating people and they're closing down big institutions. We have abandoned hospitals. Why not allow people from the streets to live there, start working in that capacity. We can educate them. Fairview Developmental Center in Costa Mesa. Huge facility. It's like a miniature city. It has its own water tower, its own police department, own fire department, has its own school, buildings galore, and it's empty. Why not allow individuals that don't have a place to live there, even if we can teach them how to cut grass and be a groundskeeper? You know how much self-esteem and self-worth that would do for a person? How about we can have them work in a laundromat and teach them that skill or in a print shop and you can live there, pick up a skill. And after a certain period, why can't we hire you on the outside with that skill you learned from there? Why can't we do that? We have the solution. I don't know what we're doing. I really don't know because it's not a self-worth or self-esteem issue. It's a self-concept issue. It's who we convince ourselves of who we are. We live by labels. When I'm in nursing mode, I'm the best nurse in the world. When I'm in counseling mode, I'm the best counselor in the world. When I'm homeless, I'm the best homeless in the world. How about if I'm a good machinist? You know, How about we start changing who the individual believe that they are and then support that, reinforce that, give people kudos? You know, That's fascinating. And I think that's why I'm doing Brown Manager so that we can have a um, prototype that's going to be able to be utilized so people can see that it's not about the talk, it's about the action. And is it that supplemented with the wraparound of support and healing and resources for addiction and mental health? Yes. And vocational training and everything else. Yeah. What is that word? Anosognosia, where people don't even know that they have a problem because I didn't know I had you a You have problem. a bigger vocabulary than I do. I have significantly less degrees, so I don't know what the word is. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I just learned that myself. Anyway, I just had to wait to use it. But the thing is, is I didn't know I had a problem until a police officer told me I had a problem. I thought it was perfectly normal to go in and out of prisons. I thought it was perfectly yeah. normal to do drugs and be homeless until I was told I had a problem. Then I had to be shown an alternative way and be exposed to that long enough to be able to utilize what's happening. And now, okay, I understand that. Because coming out from there, it almost seems like a constant climb until you get to a certain point. Because a lot of times people will say, well, once an addict, always an addict. Okay, well, I have a disease of addiction. doesn't mean I have to be an active using. Or once a convict, always a convict. And now, I don't even jaywalk, you know. And I'm, and I'm well-educated. Well, I think I am. Some people say I'm smart, but but I'm humble. That's why I put my life out there in the open. That's why I wrote a book. I want people to know that this is possible. We have a roadmap to success, and I'm not the only one. I'm probably the loudest one. I really don't care because I have an expiration date. What are you going to do? I mean, I only have to be around here for a couple, 10 or 20, 30 more years. But let's set a precedence or let's set a goal or let's set an example for other people because I believe that once a person, from my experience, gets the opportunity to do something different and they do it and they become it, then we can transform lives. You know, 
one light does make a difference. So for people listening to this, the idea is that through these stories, we can educate ourselves, we can think about the world differently, other people, ourselves differently. So if you had a call to action for the next time somebody listening walks by somebody living on the streets to think about that person differently, what would your hope be? I would hope that they realize that that is somebody's mother, brother, sister, son, daughter. They're no different than us. A lot of times, you don't realize what a person's going through. And if you sit quiet enough to think about what do you have in common with that person? And how would you want to be treated? And how would you feel if somebody treated you the way you looked at that individual? Then your nonverbal communication, that other person will pick it up. You don't even have to say nothing to them. They can look and feel safe that you're not going to condemn them because you transformed within yourself and you present in a way that's more spiritual and people will see that and they can sense it. And maybe they might say hello and that's your opening and you can say something as simple as how are you? And maybe you could be that light for that person to make them feel human again. And that might be all it takes. What do you hope people take away from your story? That anything's possible that we're all human beings and that um, nothing's perfect. Don't judge a book by its cover. Because if you look at me now, when you see me teaching at the university or caring for your loved one, you don't know where I come from. And it doesn't even matter. It doesn't. So I think people should understand that we're all human. Nothing is perfect in this world. Absolutely nothing And understand that um, we're all in the same boat and come to understand that, you know, maybe we should take a deep breath before we judge. Well, thank you, Anthony, for sharing yourself and your story. And I'm so excited to follow Brown Manor. And I hope everyone listening will as well. So thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Kimmy. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Anthony Brown. Isn't he just incredible? I hope you'll tune in next week for A Little Wiser, where we will dive deeper into this episode and some of the ideas Anthony shared about solutions for homelessness. And of course, I have to ask that if you enjoyed this episode, would you please share it? Share it with one person or 10 All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. And that was our associate producer, Tara Daigle. And that was our editor, composer, slash sound designer, John LaSala. And this is Kimmy Colt. So until next time, take care of yourself and each other.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba.